If you have a Bible, let's open up to John chapter 18. John chapter 18. We're going to pick up right where we left off last week. So we're going to look at verse 28. And so remember, we've been in this study now for well over a year. We've been going just verse by verse through this wonderful gospel account. It's been rich and dense and it's very theological. Uh, We've covered a lot of ground here and we're in the final uh, just moments of Jesus's earthly life as we are moving towards the cross and have been for some time now. John devotes a large amount of his gospel account to just the final week of Jesus's life. And so this morning we're looking at him being questioned and being brought before Pilate. And so again, if you have no idea where John is, feel free to use the table of contents. There is a copy of, uh, there's a Bible there in your pew. Also, if you don't have one, there's some blue Bibles on the way out. Please grab one of those and write your name in it. You'll go to the kind of the middle of the Bible and start going to the right. You'll see Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John. And then look for the big number 18. That's the chapter we're going to be in. And then look for the little number 28. That's the verse number that we're going to be in. Again, if you've never opened a Bible, that's how you find where we are this morning. And would love for you to follow along with us. And while you're opening there, uh, I, I want to... Recently, there's kind of been this strange shift that you have probably noticed in our culture with the entrance of the phrase, my truth. We've talked about this before, but that just that phrase that has kind of come into vogue with the idea of my truth. And it, it entered into the, nation, into the kind of the national lexicon during the hashtag MeToo movement, uh, which rightfully shone a light on the abuses of women at the hands of men in positions of authority. But the most interesting thing about this phrase is that over time, Less emphasis has been placed on objective facts and more emphasis has been placed on individual feelings. So less about what is objectively true and what you can point to as opposed to kind of what my experience has been. And that becomes then my truth. Instead of saying this is what is objectively true, it has become this is what I feel is true for me. And it begs the question then, well, then what exactly is truth? Is it all relative? Is there something that is true that transcends it all? Francis Schaeffer prophetically warned in 1960 that the church was facing a denial of what he calls true truth that would ultimately result in moral and spiritual relativism. As we see, he proclaimed that in 1960, and as we see the gears of time move forward, we found out that in many ways Francis Schaeffer was proven right. As we're in a time of moral and spiritual relativism. C.S. Lewis once wrote in his great little book or treatise called A Grief Observed. He said, you never know how much you really believe anything until its truth or falsehood becomes a matter of life or death to you. He says, you, you never really know how much you really believe that until it becomes a matter of life and death to you. And so as we look, before we get into this text, a couple of kind of quick questions to get us kind of thinking in this way this morning. Which set of truths are a matter of life and death to you? You know, we say oftentimes, I'm not going to die on that hill. What are the hills that you're willing to die on? Do you have a set of bedrock principles that drive your life? Or are you willing to flex them to avoid discomfort, stress, or conflict? The reason I'm asking this questions this morning is this morning we're going to explore a text where Jesus is dragged before both the spiritual and governmental authorities of his day 
to answer for the crime of speaking the truth. And as you might imagine, his truth, which was the actual truth, was not well received. But he knew that it was a matter of life and death, not only for him, but also for his people. And so this morning, as we look at this text, let's find out what all the fuss is about. What is Jesus being accused of here? What is he standing and claiming that is so important? It's a matter of life and death to him, and it also has massive implications for us in the here and now. So let's look at John 18. Let's start in verse 28 this morning, where we picked up last week. And let's give attention to the reading of God's word this morning. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters, and it was early morning. And they themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? And they answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. And Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, It's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were not of this world, my servants would have been fighting, that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. And Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate said to him, What is truth? The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Let's pray together and ask the Lord's help as we look to his word. Please pray with me. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we come before you and we ask that you would please meet us here. Take this word and apply it to our hearts. Speak to us, O Lord. Help my voice to last. Lord, may we see your glory this morning. Father, hide us behind the cross. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, we've talked before in previous sermons about how we have this war going on in our hearts. We all have this war between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of self. And we are made in the image of God, whether you're here and you believe it or not. You are made in the image of God, which is what gives you unique dignity and value and worth. And we have this war that's in our hearts, this struggle between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of self. And this morning's text is an example of that war kind of spilling out into the public sphere. And a little bit of historical background about what's going on here. Remember, this this was written in real space and time to other people in real space and time. And these events actually happened in history, in real space and time. And so for us to kind of understand, we kind of go from black and white to color. We need to understand what was going on at the time. We've already been introduced to Annas and Caiaphas, these two spiritual authorities that we've already found out about. And now we meet Pontius Pilate. He was a government authority by Rome. He was appointed the fifth governor of Judea in AD 26 by the emperor Tiberius. And he served in that post until around 37 AD. Judea was considered to be one of the least desirable places to be posted by Roman officials. 
Not only because it was kind of arid, it wasn't like this, you know, wonderful seaside town. It wasn't Club Med. It wasn't just that. It was also because of the constant struggles that they had with the Jews over Roman rule and authority. They were constantly bowing their necks to Roman authority and you were constantly having to go and to kind of put down and sniff out rebellions in this particular province of Judea. For an ex- example, a few examples of this that we found uh, in history, Pilate brought an image of the emperor into Jerusalem, which is pretty standard. You know, the, the, a banner of the reigning emperor would be brought kind of before the pr- procession. And he brought this into the city, and the Jews organized a six-day sit-down strike in the streets surrounding Pilate's house. It's kind of like the trucker convoy in Canada. They just kind of came and just parked and just stayed there. And it got to the point where Pontius Pilate was saying, okay, if there's anyone who doesn't clear out, I'm going to send my soldiers in to chop off your heads. And so what the Jews then did is they laid down on their backs and they stretched their necks out. So incensed were they that this image of the emperor had been brought in and he eventually had to back down. Later on, Pilate took money from the temple to build an aqueduct and the Jews did not like that, and he also struck coins to be able to be used. And at the time, whoever was kind of the over that province could strike coins with really any image on it that they wanted. And Pilate, being a pagan, decided to strike coins with pagan images on them. And as you can imagine, it was met with both severe opposition and stubbornness. And so you can see if this is kind of what is going on in the background of your rule over this area that you've been placed, it helps us kind of understand why Pilate is so pliable during this obvious farce of a trial. He was afraid of losing his career. He was afraid that word would get back to Rome about yet another Jewish revolt and that he would be removed from this post. And so it kind of helps us understand when Pilate seems to kind of give in a little bit. It helps us understand why is he not bringing the might of Rome down upon him? He was afraid that the might of Rome was about to be brought down on him for not doing a good job. But the Pharisees and Pontius Pilate actually had something in common, which is really interesting. Their little kingdoms were built on pride and self-preservation, and as we'll see, so are ours. So we're going to look at two points this morning. The first point we're going to look at is we're going to see a kingdom that is built on pride and self-preservation. A kingdom built on pride and self-preservation. This is basically verses 28 to 35. Let's look at verse 28 as our narrative opens this morning. Remember, Jesus just had a theological exam, which was kind of ironic, at the hands of Caiaphas and the denial of Peter that we talked about last week. And Jesus is then led from the high priest's kind of house in his courtyard down to Pilate's headquarters. And it says that they arrive early in the morning. Remember, everything up until this point has been happening in the dead of night. And now dawn is starting to break as the evening goes on. And notice where the Pharisees stand. Did you pick up on this? They don't actually go in. They stand outside of Pilate's residence and outside of his house. Remember, the Passover feast was going on in Jerusalem. It was a seven-day feast. And in order to participate in the entire feast, the Pharisees needed to remain ritually undefiled and to enter a pagan residence would have made them unclean. So think about the fact that they have Jesus, they have these trumped up charges against him, and they are bringing him down, and they are still worried about, oh, we can't go in there because we'll be unclean, as if something hadn't already happened at the heart level anyway. The the irony is just rich when you think about it. 
Here's what Sproul said. He said, these men, speaking of the Pharisees, this kind of rabble that had brought Jesus down, these men were scrupulous to avoid any ritual defilement even while they were carrying out the most vile act of human history. As they delivered the Lamb of God to the slaughter, they made sure their hands were ceremonially clean. Here were people who paid attention to the minute details of religion while their hearts were far from God. What an amazing indictment of the Pharisees. They think that they are doing right. It says they can do all the right things for all the wrong reasons. They're holding to the minute details of the law, but their hearts are far from God. We've talked about this before. You can be here and your rear end can be in a pew, but your heart can be far from the Lord. The Pharisees hid behind religious observance and used it to conceal the truth about their real intentions. They wanted Jesus out of the picture because he was stealing their thunder. And we've seen this throughout the gospel account. We forget just how in trouble Jesus was with the authorities of his day constantly. You go back and reread these gospel accounts. He's constantly at odds with people. Now, the, the amazing thing about this is at this point, it's so easy to just sit there and wag our heads at the Pharisees. Oh, those Pharisees, they couldn't get it. But before we wag our heads at the Pharisees, we need to remember that we are guilty of the exact same thing, which is using our religious performance as a cover for our sin and then resenting Jesus for stealing our thunder. I'm guilty of it. We're all guilty of it. A couple of examples as I was thinking through, we'll, we'll give lip service to King Jesus on Sunday, but then live as though he does not exist, much less sit on the throne throughout the week. We've said before that dusty Bibles lead to dusty hearts. We'll say that we stand with Jesus on Sunday until it gets weird at work or school or interactions with others, and then we'll really just do whatever it takes to preserve our image. Sure, we'll show up to church as long as it doesn't interfere with something else we really want to do. Then we'll just catch up when it's more convenient for our schedule on YouTube. Basically what we'll do is we'll take the Sabbath that the Lord called us to keep holy and instead of staying away for real reasons, we've got people that they just can't be here and that's okay, we love them. Instead of that, we just take the Sabbath and move it to whatever day we think is convenient and fits more for our schedule. And you see, that's what we do. We have that built into our hearts. We do this all the time. We don't want to feel accountable. We, don't, we want unfettered autonomy in every aspect of our lives. And that's why when the Bible calls us on the carpet or you hear some young meddling preacher up here, you go, who are you and who do you think you are? Because at the heart level, we always have this struggle going on. The heart of sin is I want what I want when I want it. And that's the core struggle that we see. We don't want to feel accountable. We want unfettered autonomy. We want to do whatever we want. And before we throw the Pharisees under the bus, we need to go and find ourselves in the rabble here, waving our spiritual resumes in the air. It's all of us. We're all going, look, this is what makes me better than everybody else. The Pharisees' heart, I have it, you have it, we all have it. And look at what happens in verse 29, where poor, worn-out Pilate, he acquiesces to the Jews again, and you see, how does he do this? He actually goes outside to them. You see him acquiescing. They're like, we're not going in there. And so you see Pilate, the Roman like authority in the area, with the full might and weight of Rome behind him, going and acquiescing because he doesn't want another revolt. He goes out to them. 
And he asked them for a list of formal charges, which is something Jesus did with the Pharisees not just a few hours earlier, back in verse 21. And when he asked, what are the charges, what did that earn Jesus? An open-handed slap across the face. Look at verse 30. Instead of providing formal charges, they answered with the disrespect and snark that Pilate had grown accustomed to. Look at verse 30. They come before him, and Pilate, in verse 29, went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? And they, speaking of the Pharisees, answered, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him to you. They're basically saying, he's obviously done something wrong or else we wouldn't be here right now. Again, they don't provide any charges. They just say, trust us, he's bad. It's pretty amazing when you think about what's going on here. Verse 31, Pilate sees this as yet another theological dispute. And as a pagan, he could absolutely care less. He's like, this sounds like just a church fight. Y'all go deal with this yourself. I don't care. He tells them to handle this like a spiritual matter. He tries to wash his hands of it, but the truth finally comes out and Pilate can see their motives. Why? The Pharisees wanted the death penalty imposed on Jesus, and they were trying to wash their hands of it and avoid culpability by making Rome do it. So everybody's trying to wash their hands and pass the buck, as it were, in this. Both the Jews and the Romans were only concerned with self-preservation. And they were willing to use Jesus as collateral damage to protect their own little kingdoms. Look at verse 32. It reminds us that every bit of this was under the sovereign control of Almighty God. Stoning was the method of capital punishment to the Jews, but hanging and crucifixion, known by the slang phrase being lifted up in the ancient Near East, were used by the Romans. First century Jews were horrified by crucifixion and they viewed it as equivalent to being cursed by God and bringing defilement on the land. Revelation 21, 22 to 23, if you'd like a reference for that. Back in John chapter 12, verses 32 and 33, Jesus said, And when I am lifted up, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. And he said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. We're seeing that fulfilled right here. Galatians chapter 3 verse 13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For as it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Again, all of this is under the sovereign plan of God. There is not a single part of this which catches God, which catches his son Jesus off. Where they're like, oh, I didn't know that was going to happen. Every bit of this is under the sovereign control of God. And every bit of it has a purpose. And that purpose is good news for us. Somewhere between, as you see, everything, when you think about what's going on here, everything is going according to schedule in God's plan of redemption. We are about to reach kind of the, the major end game here as we're going through this, this crucifixion account in Jesus' last week. But you notice, did you notice between verses 22 and 23, it seems like the Pharisees gave Pilate some kind of charges, but they appear to be political. Because they're charging him with subverting the emperor by claiming to be king. And so you see in verse 33, Pilate asked Jesus directly, are you the king of the Jews? Verses 30, verse 34, it's interesting because the interrogation kind of reverses. And suddenly Pilate is now on trial before the true judge as he gets interrogated. And Jesus knew this was all hearsay and there was no evidence to convict him under Roman law. 
And what happens in verse 35 is Pilate shows his shrewdness and cynicism. Look at what he says in verse 35. Look back in verse 34 where he says, you know, Pilate asked, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered in 34, do you say this of your own accord or do others say it about me? Who told you that? Now look in verse 35. Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? You see Pilate being shrewd here. He knows what's going on. And he's trying not to get backed into a corner here. And so he's being interrogated now by Jesus. And again, he's trying to kind of work his way out of it. Again, Jesus is just cannon fodder for two rival kingdoms built on pride and self-preservation. And the wickedness of the human heart is on full display as Satan works to try to snuff out the promised seed of the woman through dead religion or pagan government. Both have offered, quote, their truth in an attempt to silence Jesus. But the one who is bound, the bound king, who had just received both a theological and a civics exam, is about to speak and offer a contrasting vision of another kingdom. So what we see as we move into our second point, Jesus now proceeds to describe the reason he came into the world, which is to bear witness to the true truth, as Schaefer mentioned, at great cost to himself. This is our second point, a kingdom built on truth and self-sacrifice. Our first point is we see this kingdom that's built on pride and self-preservation. That's the kingdom of the, the Romans and the Pharisees. And you have this amazing contrast that happens here. A kingdom that's built on truth and self-sacrifice. This is verses 36 to the half, kind of the first half of verse 38 where we stopped. In verse 36, Jesus does not deny being a king. He actually describes his kingdom. Look at what he says in verse 36. Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not of this world. Jesus' kingdom is not marked by force. It's not marked by violence. It's not marked by material wealth, which is tools of the world. It's marked by self-sacrifice. How do we see a sign and a symbol of this type of kingdom placed before us? Ladies and gentlemen, Look no further than the table set before you as this sign that this is what marks this kingdom. It's not swords and it's not, you know, great battle stallions. It's a, one of service and giving his life away. Jesus said, this is my body and this is my blood, which is given for you. This is the sign of this kingdom set before you, a kingdom of service a kingdom of self-sacrifice built upon the truth. In verse 37, you can almost feel the exasperation of Pilate in this moment as he mocks Jesus' claim to be king. But it's interesting because we actually learn three important things about Jesus' kingdom and his citizens. Number one, in verse 37, we're reminded that Jesus was born a king. According to the sovereign, eternal plan of God, Jesus said, For this purpose I was born. And for this purpose, I have come into this world. Hundreds of years earlier, the prophet Isaiah had said in chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, the prophet says, Hear then, O house of David, it is too little for you to be weary men, that you weary my God also. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a son. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, 
and shall, you shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. Psalm, chapter, Psalm 2, verses 6 and 7 spoke of the coming reign of, this, uh, of the Lord's anointed. Psalm 2, which is a messianic psalm, says, As for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Jesus was born, the king, to inherit this kingdom. And look, the second thing we learn is that Jesus' kingdom is built upon the truest truth. The truest truth is that he is the Son of God. He is the promised Messiah. He is the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. He is the eternal Word that has come in flesh. He's all the things that he has proclaimed to be up until this point. All of those things are still true. Ketty said, his kingdom is a kingdom of truth. Not truth in the abstract, but truth as it is revealed in Jesus. John 3, 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. John 14, verse 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. We find out a third thing here about Jesus' kingdom. And this is good news for us this morning, that the citizens of Christ's kingdom are those who hear his voice and respond in faith. Look again at verse 37 here. In verse 38, verse 37, Pilate said to him, So you're a king. And Jesus answered, You say that I'm a king. We see, find out, for this purpose I was born. That's our first thing. For this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness about the truth. That's the second thing. And finally, the third thing we learn, everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. The citizens of Christ's kingdom are those who hear his voice and respond in faith. The citizens of this kingdom have been and are found within the bounds of every earthly kingdom. A kingdom that is built in the hearts of people that knows no boundaries and respects no other sovereign than King Jesus and bows to no earthly throne. Dictators and petty tyrants had tried to snuff out this kingdom for centuries to no avail. John 10, 27-30, Jesus said, My sheep hear my voice. And I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they'll never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Almost done. Why should we care? Why should we care about any of this? Why should we wake up and pay attention now? This eternal security gives the people of God an otherworldly confidence, strength, and assurance through anything that the world can throw at them. Why? Because they have been included by grace in the only kingdom that cannot be shaken. Did y'all see the video going around with a bunch of Ukrainian refugees down underground singing hymns of the faith together? You think about what's going on here. The bombs are exploding around them. This bully is trying to wipe them out. And they're singing songs of the faith, clinging to each other, because they know beyond a shadow of a doubt that they have a kingdom that cannot be shaken. You heard the testimony of Maya Mikaluk and her husband. They posted a video on Facebook last night saying, look, we don't know what's going to happen. We don't know. But we do know one thing. God's sovereign and he's in control and he loves us. What could possibly give someone that kind of strength and assurance? Jesus. 
The Holy Spirit reminding you that you have a kingdom that cannot be shaken and you've been called and given a new family. Reminders like this that if you are in Christ, no one can snatch you out of the Father's hand. No one. Nothing. Think about just what hope that brings. You hear other stories that you can imagine. Another one that I thought of in the book, The Fair Sunshine, about the Scottish Covenanters. These two women refused to give up the gospel. And they were tied to the stake in the midst of the tide. And they were allowed to drown while the tide rose. And they prayed and they sung and they encouraged each other as the tide rose and they were drowned because they would not forsake their king. You think about all these stories that we have. What gives Christians hope beyond the grave? What gives us the ability to stare life in the face regardless of what may come and say, you know what, you might win in this life. But I've got a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego standing at the front of the fiery furnace being called, forsake your God. They say, we will never bow to you. And even if you throw us into the fire and if we die, our Lord can save us. And even if he doesn't, even if he doesn't, we will still not bow to you. We will never forsake the king. This king who comes, you think about the kingdom of self-sacrifice. Jesus didn't come and rattle a bunch of sabers. He came in and gave himself. So why should we care? It gives us the ability for us to give of ourselves for the sake of his kingdom. For us to say, you know what, come what may, I know that my Redeemer lives and he's coming back again. Hebrews 11, 36, through the first little bit of 12, talks about this, this great hall of faith. That's kind of the end of the hall of faith. These are our brothers and sisters we're about to read about, ladies and gentlemen. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. And they were stoned and they were sawn in two and they were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And, they, and all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us looking to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. If you are here this morning and you are looking for actual truth and you are tired of resting in, quote, your truth or the truth of the world that constantly shifts with every cultural wind, I've got some good news for you. Look to Jesus. Look to the anchor of your soul. Look to Christ. If you're asking the same cynical question that Pilate did in verse 38 where he cynically said, well, what is truth? Look to Jesus, the one who was lifted up in your place and bow the knee to the true king. Give up on your foolish attempts to build your own little kingdom and cast your rusty crown down at the feet of Jesus and repent before the true and rightful king of glory. He will not be mocked. If you're here and you claim Christ as your king, repent of the ways that you're demanding that he bow to you and your preferences. Christ will not be mocked. He will not be moved. His kingdom will never pass away while yours and mine crumble into the dust.
Percy Shelley expressed the same thought in the 1818 poem Ozymandias about a traveler crossing an ancient desert. He tells the story that this, this traveler comes across two vast trunkless legs of stone rising from the desert sand. And nearby a menacing stone face partially protrudes from the ground and on the pedestal is this inscription, My name is Ozymandias, King of Kings. Look on my works, ye mighty and despair. Here's what Shelley said. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. Pilate is dead. The emperors of Rome is dead. Joseph Smith of Mormonism is dead. Buddha is dead. Pol Pot is dead. Alexander the Great is dead. Stalin is dead. Putin will die. King Kim Jong-un will die. All earthly rulers will fade like grass. Isaiah chapter 40 verses 7 and 8. The grass withers. The flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers. The flower fades. But the word of our God will stand forever. Think about what Peter said. Remember Peter from last week? The one who denied Jesus three times? Think about what happened to him. He said in Acts chapter 4, verses 11 and 12, This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is no salvation, there is salvation in no one else, for there's no under name under heaven given by among men by which we must be saved. And this is the truth that we lift up and we proclaim to the world around us, regardless of what happens. You want to know what that truth is? That Jesus is the Son of God. He is the promised Messiah. He is the only way to salvation. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. That is our hope. That's what we grab tightly to. And we proclaim it to the dying world around us. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. In 96 AD, the Jewish historian Josephus wrote about Jesus and Pilate. Here's what he said. Now there was about this time Jesus a wise man, if it be lawful to call him a man. For he was a doer of wonderful works, a teacher of such men as to receive the truth with pleasure. He drew over to him both many of the Jews and many of the Gentiles. He was the Christ. And when Pilate, at the suggestion of the principal men among us, had condemned him to the cross, those that loved him at the first did not forsake him. For he appeared to them alive again the third day, as the divine prophets had foretold these and 10,000 other wonderful things concerning him. Catch this. And the tribe of Christians, so named from him, are not extinct to this day. Praise God for that. King Jesus still reigns. His kingdom is still advancing. And to that we say, Amen. Come Lord Jesus, come what may. Aren't you glad that the king is not extinct? Our king lives, his kingdom is advancing, and come what may, we can stare life in the face and say, Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again, and I will die on that hill all day long for the glory of Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this picture of our Savior being interrogated by religious leaders, by government authorities being, being interrogated. And yet, Lord, was steadfast until the end. And we are grateful, O oh Lord, that you are a king 
You are the true and faithful one. And Father, as we think about all those who have gone before us, as we've read, some were sawn in two and some went about in the wilderness and were persecuted, O Lord. Help us to trust and rest in you all the more. Help us to pray for those who are persecuted for claiming your name. Lord, we pray that you would help us to submit to your rule. Father, that you would help us to see your Son in all of his glory as the King, and that we would bow and submit to him. Father, that you would help us to repent of the ways that we're trying to build our own little kingdoms, kingdoms that are built on pride and self-preservation and self-sufficiency. And Father, help us to trust and rest in the kingdom that is not of this world, the kingdom of Christ, one that is marked by self-sacrifice and service. Father, help us to serve those around us. Remind us in a moment as we take your meal of grace how you laid down your life for us. We're so forgetful. And Father, help us to be reminded of your love. And Father, we pray that you would strengthen our hearts, strengthen our minds. Lord, as we continue to proclaim to a lost and broken and dying world that hates you, our Savior Christ has died, our Savior Christ is risen, and our Savior Christ the King will return again in glory. And for that we pray, amen, come Lord Jesus. Amen.